Welcome to the I-29 MUU Dairy Podcast. I-29 MUU University is a consortium of land-grant universities in Minnesota, Iowa, South Dakota, and Nebraska. This podcast covers timely news, information, and research for today's dairy industry. Hi, my name is Jim Salfer. I'm with the University of Minnesota, and I'm a dairy educator in central Minnesota. Today's podcast, where I'm joined by two colleagues that I work closely with, Fred Hall from Iowa State University and Jen Bentley from Iowa State University, one in the northwest part of the state, uh, Fred, and Jen is in the northeast part of the state. Welcome, Fred and Jen. Always a pleasure to uh, have the opportunity to visit. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, and one of the things we thought we'd talk about today was uh, what's kind of the future of a mid and small size farm? And I guess uh, all the listeners probably have different opinion of what that means to them, depending upon what they're at. But in central Minnesota here, we've got a lot of small farms yet um, and mid-sized farms. And there, I get the question a lot about, you know, do I have a future in the industry? Everybody in the upper Midwest, and I think if you've been a part of the upper Midwest dairy industry, you probably kind of have the same question. So uh, we thought we'd kind of discuss, ponder, and maybe debate that issue today. So I don't know, Fred or Jen, do you guys have any any thoughts and opinions? Or I could go through a little bit on what the, what our FinBin database at the University of Minnesota shows. Yeah, you know, Jim, I think before we even get started talking about that is kind of take one step back and just have a little conversation about the demand for dairy products and that overall continuation. I think I was at one of your meetings last week and you were talking about population, right? And then we had some demand there for the population. So maybe first kick it off with that. Yeah. And I do this a lot for presentations because I think we get, we all get that question a lot. And I'm sure listeners are thinking um, there's always information on the news. We're going to go out all cultured meat products or plant-based foods. And it just seems to appear not those aren't fads. I mean, they're here to stay. You go in the grocery store and they've been a little bit mainstream, but livestock products continue to grow. And part of that's driven by population growth. When I look at it, when you look at the the U.S., we've added a brand new person every 16 seconds. Last time I looked, there's kind of fun calculators online. You can look at the U.S. population change or world population. And if you look at the U.S. now, there's about 8 billion people in the world. You know, there's some countries, there's a lot of discussion about when they'll plateau. But as people become richer in some of these poorer countries, they continue to eat livestock products. So there's no reason to believe that the population is going to go down or per capita dairy consumption is going to go down. That keeps going up. We don't set a new record every year. But, you know, the last few months, it's been a little bit softer with inflation. But typically every year the per capita dairy consumption goes up now that's not milk it's not fluid milk but overall our equivalent is going up butter keeps going up cheese keeps going up so we're in pretty good shape in the midwest so based on every every trend that you see people like dairy it's a flexible product it's a very nutritious product so if you're in the dairy industry i think you can feel good about what you produce you guys have any comments well, I think we, you know, have to understand it's not just cheese and yogurt. You know, one of the real floors in our marketplace is our powders. You know, there's very few products. I mean, when we look at McDonald's, for example, 
80% of McDonald's has a dairy product in it. And when we look around the world, powders go into a lot of food that consumers in developing countries consume. So I think we have to understand that the ingredient mix is changing because processors know they can make a healthy product and that protein source is what consumers all over the world need. Yeah, I think you're right, Fred. There was a presentation I was to a couple of years ago that a guy from uh, Adam Locke, actually, from Michigan State, talked about. And when you look at the nutrients that humans have a challenge getting, most of those are very high in dairy products. And that's not just protein. Part of it's potassium, magnesium, calcium. The other thing that's really unique about dairy, especially casein, casein carries calcium. That's one of the reasons these third world countries just love milk products and because their population, particularly their children, have a challenge getting enough calcium. And so they, if they can get dairy products into them, they also get that calcium. And it's a very available form of calcium. I mean, we always can get limestone cheap, but limestone's not very affordable, <laughs> nor does it taste very good. So I think you're right, Fred. It, it, that's one of the reasons there, there's a demand for these products. It is a, a contrary to what some people say, or you might read in the internet, dairy is a really, really nutritious food. It's a good segue for Jim for our June Dairy Month, right? We're promoting yeah. our dairy industry. But as we take a look at that, you know, the demand of our dairy products, yes, it's increasing. But we're doing a phenomenal job on our dairy farms producing milk too, right? We've made a lot of management changes in the last many years to improve how cows are producing milk, which also drives the overall capacity or overall increase of of milk in the market too. So then there becomes the question that we're kind of seeing now is where are we going with all this milk? And that's a problem in the upper Midwest, right? We just don't have enough processing capacity. So I think that's a little bit of a challenge, I think, you know, moving forward. And I think that is partly kind of what spurred this discussion is what is a future in the upper Midwest primarily? Uh, if you go to Kansas or Texas, they don't have, I mean, they have smaller farms, but nothing kind of relative to what we have. And so I think that that is true. And when you look at these, when you look at some of the, some of the profitability, you know, as Jen, as you mentioned, we're really good at making milk. I mean, we're, we're really good at it. And of course, in any commodity market, as you do that, margins tend to be compressed over time. And that's not unique to dairy. You know, crops tend to be the same way. And of course, the lumber industry tends to be the same way. And Mining seems to be the same way. You get bigger equipment, more efficient equipment. Uh, you can do it faster and better. And so margins per unit tend to decrease. And that's where we've been in dairy forever, it seems like. So that does make it a little bit more of a challenge for these smaller farms because one way to keep total profit is to increase animal numbers. And we have a lot of farms that, that just maybe isn't their desire. Are you guys seeing well, the same thing where you're at? Absolutely. I think that's a, across the upper Midwest. However, I think that as a 40 cow dairy or 90 cow dairy, 120, whatever your number is, I think you have to fit your marketplace. Absolutely. You can't try to 
like you said earlier, be a river view. But you certainly can do some things that will continue to give you additional margin. It might be purebred cattle. It might be using beef embryos. I mean, I think every farm has to really dig in and evaluate what can I do to in either increase the margin or decide is there something else I, I need to be doing. And I know that's a hard pill, but, you know, at some point there is life after the calves. Yeah, exactly right, Fred. I think over the last maybe, um, I don't know, 30 or 40 years, the first thing all these farms did was sent a spouse to get an off-farm job. I mean, part of that is driven by part of that is driven by just the skill of the spouse and also the demand or the pressures on healthcare on these farms. But you're exactly right, Fred. I think you know we do a lot of programs looking at you know farms developing business plans and what they should do. And one of our comments as a team is what you need to do is kind of get up in the morning and look in the mirror and determine what is your competitive advantage. And your farm may look different than your neighbors from both a size standpoint and a mix. And you said, Fred, we, we all have different natural resource strengths or even skills. And so what are you really, really good at that you can take advantage of and be a winner in the marketplace in that area? You know, that might be low cost. Maybe you're a good crop producer. That's what I think about. Some of our dairy farmers are good crop producers. So they can have above average crops and they can be good with cows. Some of them are really bad crop producers. And the best thing they can do is really have their crops custom farmed. So I, I think the same thing, you could you could say have the same argument with heifers. What do you see in, in Northeast Iowa, Jen? What are some of these uh, kind of mid-sized farms doing to try and stay competitive? Well, I think both of you said, you know, some of the exact same things that I would say and just kind of finding their niche. And, you know, we have some that are looking at on-farm processing too, right? That's another niche that can be utilized if you have somebody that's skilled in making some of those products and then having someone on your farm that is good at marketing and promotion to market those products. Uh, you can develop quite a niche just by selling your your milk that way too. I find that getting to be more, more interest, I would say, in this area. Definitely, Jim, like you said, the crops, we have a diverse type of dairy. We have grazers who utilize pastures very well. They can manage those and and get good milk production, good health on the cows by grazing. That's another way that some of our farms are are kind of maximizing where they're at too. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe this is unique to Minnesota because we've got so, no, you guys have a lot of swine and poultry in Iowa too. But a few other things people are doing up here is if they don't want to expand the dairy, you know, they might build a contract or two, maybe a poultry finishing barn or a, or a hog finishing barn. Those are reasonably low in labor. Margins aren't real high, but it does help stabilize that income. You know, as a milk income fluctuates, a contract barn. So there are, you know, so there's not a one size fits all. The other, I think, model that has kind of surprised me, you know, I've always thought hobby dairy farms were impossible, but we have now some smaller farms 
I guess they're smaller that are bringing in sons or daughters and those sons and daughters are working off the farm. They'll continue to work off the farm and they're maybe putting in robots or something that allows them to have some flexibility. So there's some that are consciously saying, yeah, I know a robot barn is really expensive, but it will allow my next generation to work off the farm. And by all accounts, their goal is to continue to work off the farm and so I shouldn't say the dairy farm is a hobby because I don't think that's really possible, but they want to be dairy farmers. They really like the cows. They don't want to get big. And so I just didn't think I'd ever see that. And I'm, I'm hearing more of that. I don't know if you guys are hearing that in your areas at all. We see that across our landscape here in Northeast Iowa, just, you know, the smaller herd size is maybe a little bit more conducive to some of our family farms who who don't have the labor option or that just provides them a little bit more flexibility in their day, as well as if they have off-farm jobs to continue, like you said, to dairy. I think that's one of the things that we have been with blinders on. We thought if I'm going to bring in my son or daughter-in-law or daughter, we have to look at this get bigger dairy. And now I think you hit it on the head we're looking at other things. We we want to be close to our family. We enjoy the cows. So maybe we do this a little differently than how dad and granddad brought the next generation in. And I think it's important that as folks who work with these dairymen, we make them think and we ask them to consider, you know, why are we looking at more cows why are we looking you know maybe the son likes to help dad and be around the family but really has an interest he's going to be a mechanic and come home at night help finish chores up so yeah i think we're seeing more of that yeah it's an interesting fred i was just just talking to a producer actually over in Wisconsin, and she happens to be a female, works off the farm, and I think it's just a fan, kind of a family friend, and she said, I'm the herdsman on the farm for the weekends, so they can get away, and again, it's a robot farm, and so I, I think in the areas where there's a, still a lot of young people that really like cows, I think there's some areas that's, that's not that common, but they just like working on dairy farms, they like working with cows, and so you mentioned for i think there's a again it's it's just being creative i think there's a message out of this podcast it says just don't box yourself in and thinking that there's a certain way to do this but the on the flip side of it i think you do need a strategy i think if you don't have a strategy and just think you're gonna milk cows like your maybe your parents or grandparents did it that may not be a winning strategy so i think it's just being real kind of strategic and then working with your you know working with your agribusiness people and or your lenders or some trusted financial advisor just to make sure that the plan you're thinking about works jim you couldn't set me up any better you know this kind of for me says every dairy needs to have that advisory group to help bring these ideas, you know, your veterinary and nutritionist, hopefully the extension folks in the area. But I think that helps bring good ideas to fruition. 
Jen, I interrupted you. Nope, that was that was fine. I was just going to lead into a question because I think Jim's comments kind of led right into me asking about some of that Finbin data that you presented on what does it, what do those high profit farms look like and what kind of sets them apart from other farms? Yeah, and for people that aren't familiar with is we've got a database in Minnesota. It's not all Minnesota farms, it's other farms, but it's a kind of a nice database you can sort. And everybody's finbin.umn.eu if you want to go and look. And I looked at farms from 200 to 500 cows. Now we can argue that's whether that's the right size or not. That's kind of a medium sized farms. And you can sort them by profit cohort. And when you look at that, you know, there are some farms in that if that's considered a mid-size range, that are pretty consistently profitable. The top 20%, uh, the median income, so as averages get kind of out of whack a little bit. So the median, so half the farms are more and half, half of them are less. Top 20% of the farms over since 2015, so some good years in there, some really bad years in there, average well over 250,000 net farm income. But the bottom half, so that's the top 20%, um, the next 20% average about 150. The bottom half probably made enough for family living except the bottom cohort, the bottom 20%. And this is kind of every year. They tend to really struggle. But the things that make them profitable, it's when I looked at all the factors and tried to, they, they really do a nice job of sorting. It's really in a nutshell is operating profit margins are bigger. And what that really means is, how much money out of every dollar you spend, how much do you get to keep? You know, so for every dollar you spend, does it take you 90 cents to earn that dollar? The high profit farms keep between about 15 and 25, 23 cents. And these are the top, about the top half, keep between 15 and 25 cents for every dollar that they bring in, they get to keep as net farm income. The ones that are below that make less. The other thing is asset turnover rate. So basically what that is, is out of all the income, all of your assets, how much revenue you, do you generate on an annual basis? And higher, basically what it means is how hard are your assets? So hard, uh, higher profit farms have harder working assets. So when they invest in an asset, it generates a more income. Now, this is, can be a little bit of a challenge because land is not a real hardworking asset. Uh, gener it grows over time. But I think those are the two things I think these smaller farms that are going to be profitable have to think about is investing in assets that make them more money and will make them more money in the future. And sometimes that's, you know, it's a little bit hard, but I think these these medium-sized farms are going to have to accept their might be they're going to work with an established asset base whether that's land or whether that's some facilities it's it's hard to build a brand new greenfield turnkey dairy that's going to be small and make those cash flow numbers work but those are the two big things jen that kind of investing in hard-working assets that might be cow comfort that might be cooling dry cows here's me I, I kind of bash pickups and I'm not smash complaining. Anybody has a pickup, but pickups aren't real hardworking assets. You don't need to spend $80,000 on a pickup to drive around. If you can afford it, power to you. But there might be some other assets you can invest in that'll make you more money. As you look at this asset turnover rate, when you 
see them in your spreadsheet. What are you looking for? What do you think in your experience is the right rate? I don't know. You know, you look at these numbers and there be the, the high profit farms are be 20, between 25 and 30%. And so I think that's probably a decent number to shoot for. I've never looked at other enterprises like swine or crops specifically. I would assume crops might be a little bit less because they've got so much money tied up in land. Um, but I think, you know, I'm not sure exactly where all of this comes from. I assume some some will have a little bit older buildings, probably a little bit older equipment. I know when I talk to our crop people and ask them what, what separates a high crop profit farms from the low profit crop farms, they'll kind of say equipment investment per acre. Your land investment is what your land investment is. I mean, rent is what rent is. But they'll say these guys who can invest less money per acre in machinery tend to win. And so I'm guessing this is sort of probably similar with these dairy farms is they they just know what to invest in. And I, I said, one of the things I think in the future is kind of good business acumen. These guys just, we all know farmers that just have a really good business sense about them and just know kind of what to invest in and just know how to make money. So if you're not that person or you're young, mentor a farmer that's good at it. If you're really young, I think Fred and Jen, Fred, you had said it, get a good management team. If there's a farmer you admire in your neighborhood and you're a young producer and he's maybe older and really successful, farmers love to mentor young farmers. And so set him up as a mentor and run ideas by him. Uh, we tend to be so darn independent as farmers. Um, there's nothing wrong with stealing other people's ideas and getting their input. So I would encourage every young farmer to find a good mentor that's another farmer and really pick their brain about how they've become successful. As we're thinking about uh, closing out today's program, uh, Jen, what? One thing you want to uh, leave with everybody uh, as we close out today. Sure. Well, I think, you know, we brought a lot of different ideas, right? There is no one way to have it run a dairy farm. And I think all these options can work. And I think a lot of it is in the details, right? Knowing your numbers. Jim mentioned a lot of those, you know, asset turnover rate, knowing what you're investing in and is it making your dairy more profitable, more efficient. So taking a look at what you're investing in to be profitable. Those are kind of the big takeaways that I'm I'm getting from this uh, discussion here. How are you, Fred? Well, I would say, you know, my dad was a CPA and he always said, if it won't work on paper, it won't work in real life. And I think there's, take that how the intent is really Take these ideas and go back to your records and understand what that change is going to be. You know, you want to do things that will make you money. Jim's idea about new pickups don't ride any differently than a, a little older pickup gets the same job done. I think that's vital. Jim, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I had said it earlier, but I just think, 
uh, if you're going to remain a smaller farm or a mid-sized farm, whatever that, and that's a moving target, but just get up in the morning and look at a mirror. And I know business plans sound really academic, but kind of lay out what you want your farm to look like and take advantage of your advantages. Jen mentioned grazing. If you've got a farm that lays out really well for grazing, that can give you an advantage. A skill set. Fred had mentioned, you mentioned like a, a mechanic. We have some of that coming back. If you're really good at fixing, get a little older equipment and or set up an on-farm shop and do some work for your neighbor or some machine work. I think figure out what you're really, really good at and then do it. I I think copying your neighbor isn't necessarily going to work. So I think I can, I can kind of close this out and just as a kind of a wrap up. I, I think Jen and I and Fred, we all have a passion. We all grew up working with small farms. And so I think you can tell by us talking that we really want these farms to be successful. We want all farms to be successful. So I really appreciate you joining us. I hope you got some tips from this. And then make sure you check the episode notes and there might be some links for some resources. And of course, there's always information from our sponsors because without them, we really couldn't uh, make these podcasts or any of our other programs successful. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'd like to thank our 2022-2023 annual I-29 sponsors. Learn more about Iowa Corn Growers Association at iowacorn.org. I-29 MUU is an equal opportunity provider for the full non-discrimination statement or accommodation inquiries, go to extension.iastate.edu forward slash diversity forward slash ext.